Welcome. I'm honored to be with you in this online service as we dig into God's Word and allow Him to speak to our hearts. You know, I'm really blessed by the public works of such men as C.S. Lewis and Charles Haddon Spurgeon. These men, along with countless other men and women, have made significant contributions into the life of faith of the church for many, many decades. But there's something that we cannot miss. We must remember that such contributions from individual lives are not simply public demonstrations of faith, but their public contributions come from a personal experience with God. I love the fact that both Spurgeon and Lewis have have contributed many books and sermons and Lewis, even movies that have blessed and encouraged our faith. But again, the impact did not simply originate from an outward presentation of faith. The impact came from an inward experience with God through faith in Jesus Christ. I'd like to share with you the conversion story of both Lewis and Spurgeon. First, from C.S. Lewis. In 1929, he was sitting in his dorm room, his personal room, uh, in the uh, constituent school with Oxford, the School of Magdalen. And as he sat there, God began moving in his life, and he he resisted this movement. Uh, Lewis had been considering the truth of Jesus Christ for a lengthy time, and at this moment, he felt God moving in his heart. In fact, Lewis describes that conversion experience in this way. I was like a prodigal who was brought in kicking, struggling, resentful, with eyes darted in every direction looking for a chance of escape. But God's compassion was my liberation. What an amazing account of that which took place personally in Lewis's life, which certainly became the seedbed for all of the incredible public demonstration of faith from that dear individual. Now consider Spurgeon. In the winter, particularly January of 1850, Spurgeon was awakened with a deep sense of needing deliverance. He was a young teenager at the time, and this seemed a bit odd to him because he had grown up in the congregational church and had even been christened as a baby. But he woke up with this uh, sense of a need for deliverance, so he made his way to a local church, but because of the inclement weather, he had to dart in to a primitive Methodist church to seek shelter. And as he made his way into this church and sat down, there was a a guest speaker, a layperson, who was preaching. And the message came from Isaiah chapter 45, verse 22. Look unto me, and you shall be saved. And at that moment, Spurgeon met Jesus Christ and encountered him through his faith in trusting what Jesus did on the cross. And so I I look at these two lives, again, along with many others, who've made significant contributions, but their their impact came from a personal encounter with God. And so these encounters, along with your encounter with Jesus, all mark a miraculous event, a miraculous encounter. These stories help us to develop an appreciation, more deeply I might say, of the encounters we read about in the scriptures. I invite you to consider some personal encounters today from God's word, 
specifically from Acts chapter 16. Here in this chapter, we discover three specific encounters individuals had with God through their faith in Jesus Christ. And I pray that these stories, as we recount them today, will encourage your faith and move you more deeply and more passionately to consider who you are in relationship with God. I know much is said again and again about our our uh, public demonstration of faith as we participate in public worship and as we as we participate in religious activities. But for a moment, move to the to the personal. Do take it personally and move to that place where you are considering who you are personally with God and personally with Jesus. So I invite you into Acts chapter 16 as we discover three specific stories about an individual's encounter, a personal encounter with God. Before we engage with these stories, uh, context becomes necessary. I love how Chapter 16 becomes woven together by God's hand as he moves the Apostle Paul, that first century pastor and missionary, into some specific locations and ultimately to the city of Philippi. This particular city becomes the location of these encounters that we embrace today. So for just a moment, follow with me on a biblical map how God moved the Apostle Paul into place in the city of Philippi so that these encounters with Jesus would, would become reality. And I, I pray that you'll never see your life as insignificant. I pray that you'll never see your life as absent of God's mighty hand because in the city of Philippi, there were three individuals who did not see themselves significantly connected with God at all. And yet God moved the Apostle Paul through these circuitous routes so that he might find his own way to Philippi and become an instrument in God's hand to share the message of Jesus with these three unsuspecting individuals. So let's let's look through the scripture to gain some context that will better demonstrate how these three personal encounters with God through the story of Jesus Christ became a significant impact on the first century church and on the development of Christianity in the world. And I pray that you'll not underestimate and undervalue this very moment because God has situated you to hear the story of the gospel, regardless of, of where you see yourself in relationship to God and to Jesus. God has a message today and, and there exists no accident uh, that has brought you to this place of hearing what God has to say. And so this, uh, this incredible reality reminds us of how God brings us together to hear his truth so that he can do a great work in our lives. Now, certainly, again, context is necessary. And before we engage more deeply into Acts chapter 16, we look at the conclusion of the previous chapter, Acts chapter 15, and we see evidence of Paul saying that he would desire to go back to places he had recently visited and to encourage those Christian converts there. This positioned Paul from Jerusalem up through Cilicia and Syria and on to Derby and Lystra. As Acts chapter 16 opens, Paul has made his way on to Derby and Lystra where he met with Timothy. Paul had already been joined by Silas and now as he made his way to Lystra, his small missionary team grows by one as he is joined by 
Timothy. Now, as we just read straight from the scripture, we, we read from verse 6 in Acts chapter 16 that this missionary team went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, which would represent this area here. As they uh, entered this area, there was an inclination to move into Asia and to begin to preach the gospel. But listen to what verse 6 states. They were prevented by the Holy Spirit from speaking the message in the province of Asia. That time had not yet come. Although their desire to speak the gospel here was pure, the Holy Spirit redirected them. And so likely, Paul thought, well, we must need to go north. And north represented a, a place, a region known as Mysia. We see this reality uh, spelled out historically in verse 7. So they came to Mysia and then attempted to go to, to Bithynia. Now, uh, Bithynia was a place that, uh, that uh, located a large amount of Jewish settlements. And also there were many uh, Greek cities there. Both the Jewish settlements and the Greek cities were, were flourishing places that would likely and rationally be a great place to preach the gospel. And so it's likely that Paul thought that since uh, the Holy Spirit hindered them from entering Asia, that perhaps the, the plan was that they go north. But then we hear from God's word in verse 8, or in verse 7 rather, that the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them to even go north. So the Holy Spirit prevented them from going into the province of Asia, and the Spirit of Jesus, according to verse 7, prevented them from going north. So the only direction left was obviously this direction. So we continue reading. So bypassing Mysia, this area here, they bypassed Mysia. And as the scripture unfolds, they came down to Troas, this port city, which was a major thoroughfare between Asia and Macedonia. And as they arrived in Troas, during the evening, as we continue to read verse 9, Paul um, experienced a vision of a Macedonian man standing and pleading with him, cross over to Macedonia and help us. And after he had the vision, as Luke writes, and now Luke has joined them, we immediately made efforts to set out for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to work there. So they were directed by a vision over to Macedonia, and thus they entered the city of Philippi. I love the amazing way that God's hand directed this missionary team and how God grew this missionary team and led them to Philippi. Now, something took place in Philippi that we really need to embrace. And so this is where we spend the rest of our moments together. As we uh, engage chapter 16 in verse 11, Paul and his missionary team are now entering into Philippi. And we read this, Setting sail from Troas, we ran straight forth to Samothrace, and then the next day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, a Roman colony. Verse 13. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the city gate by the river where we thought there would be a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the women there who were praying. Now we come to the first of the three encounters that I believe will really encourage us today. So we come first to the story of Lydia, captured in verses 13 through 15. Let's read about this first personal encounter uh, with Jesus Christ and with the gospel. 
A woman named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira, who worshipped God, was listening. And the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was spoken by Paul. And after she and her household heard, they were baptized. And she urged us, if you consider me a believer in the Lord, come and stay in my house. And she persuaded us. What an amazing story we have here. So as the scripture unfolds, Lydia was from Thyatira. Thyatira was a city whose uh, whose central commerce, among many, many others, was uh, was this sale and this manufacturing of very valuable uh, purple linen. Uh, many people of notoriety and, and even nobles would, would be interested in purchasing this linen. So this became a very valuable commerce. Likely, Lydia found her way from Thyatira to to Philippi for the sake of increased commerce. Now that would be the rational way of thinking, but we know God, uh, in his, in his divineness moved her there as well. So, so God moved Paul and his team all the way across, uh, through, uh, around Asia over to Macedonia. And then God brought, uh, brought Lydia from, from Thyatira to Philippi. And then this is what happened. Paul and his mission team entered the city of Philippi. Now, Paul uh, customarily, when entering a city, would would seek out the synagogue so that he might find a place to publicly speak and share the gospel of Jesus. Well, as he entered Philippi, there was no synagogue to be found. And so after some conversation, Paul was directed to a small prayer group just uh, one mile outside the city at a nearby river. The actual name of the river was likely the Strayman River or likely a tributary of the Strayman River, which connected Neapolis and Philippi. And so these river banks were very prominent places where people would gather. And Paul had learned that there was a small prayer group just outside the city. So Paul and his mission team made their way there and they they joined uh, the prayer group. And then as they came and sat down, likely... Some in the prayer group noticed their posture of, of being seated with them and maybe assumed that they were rabbis or teachers. And so they were given an opportunity to teach. And so Paul spoke and shared the gospel. And in that moment, God opened the heart of Lydia. We read this in verse 14. God opened her heart. This little makeshift prayer group, present because there was no synagogue, primarily made up of women because according to custom, you would need at least 10 Jewish men, 10 faithful Jewish men to establish a synagogue. Evidently, that was not present in any formal sense. And so a group of ladies had begun gathering by the Strayman River, by this tributary, and they had formed a little prosuko, this temporary praying place. History teaches that likely there were stones that had been circled with an opening up under uh, uh, the canopy of a tree or or possibly near a thoroughfare, a path, so that this could be a a noted place of prayer. Paul and his uh, missionary team entered this place of prayer. They gave him the opportunity to speak and Paul shared the gospel and God opened Lydia's heart. He opened her, her soul and her spirit. God's Holy Spirit was at work in her life and she heard the gospel and she placed her faith in Jesus and she was baptized and her entire household was baptized as well. What an amazing story. 
of how God located the missionary team and Lydia. She heard the gospel. This woman of influence, in fact, the scripture not only describes her as a woman of of, of influence and, and a woman of affluence due to her commerce and purple linen, but she was also a worshiper of God. The scripture describes her as one who worshiped God. So likely she was influenced by the Jewish culture of Thyatira and of Philippi, but likely had not become a, a complete proselyte in the Jewish faith, but nonetheless recognized uh, the God of the Jews, God Jehovah, and and began to uh, worship him and participate in the Sabbath prayers. Uh, but notice that although she was very active in worshiping God and in prayer, she had not heard the whole story. She had not heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul shared the story of Christ. She placed her faith in Jesus, and she became a believer in her entire household. Now, there are some some key applications that we need to embrace before we move to the next encounter. And I'd like to share these these applications with you. We're not simply engaging these personal encounters to be amazed at, at the historicity contained in Acts chapter 16. We're looking into the lives of real people in a real location who had a real need to hear Jesus. And through hearing the gospel, uh, these individuals placed his or her faith in Christ and and their lives were changed. And we need to gain some, some true uh, necessary applications from the these narratives, from these real encounters. So let me share with you three uh, real life applications from the story of Lydia. First, religious participation and religious zeal do not define, but only express the Christian faith. Religious participation, attending a prayer group, and religious zeal do not define but only express the Christian faith. It is very possible, proven through the life of Lydia, that one can participate in religion and even participate with great zeal and yet still not know Jesus Christ. And so may we truly understand that God desires to move us past any religious affiliation to a true knowledge of Jesus, understanding what he did on the cross and surrendering our hearts to him. We know that Lydia had religious participation and zeal, for there would be zeal required to gather in a makeshift prosuko, a makeshift prayer circle uh, to to meet in lieu of, of, of a formal synagogue. So there were a group of prayers who who would go beyond the normal commitment to actually meet and recognize Jehovah God during a Sabbath prayer. So she had religious participation and religious zeal, but did not know Jesus. So the first life application, religious participation and religious zeal do not define, they only express Christian faith. So we can assume that if we simply desire to participate in church and other religious activities, even at a level of zeal or excitement, that does not presume or conclude that our faith is in Christ. We need a real encounter with placing our faith and trust in Jesus. There's a second life application. The gospel message of Jesus always demands a response. Please understand, Lydia worshiped God. She recognized God. But upon hearing the gospel of Jesus, 
She responded. There was faith and her life was changed. And according to the narrative of Acts 16, her entire household was changed. In fact, we know there was immediate change. Romans 12 tells us that a part of the Christian life is expressing that hospitality and immediate, immediately Lydia began practicing fellowship with the apostles, with Paul and his missionary team, and began exercising that, that hospitality that, that should be so evident in the, in the lives of, of Christ's followers. And so Lydia heard and, and placed her faith in Jesus. The gospel message of Jesus Christ always demands a response. And Lydia heard the gospel and responded. I'm, I'm fearful that there are many who hear the gospel and because of their religious activity and zeal, they feel they're good. And so having heard the gospel, they, they do not see the, the necessity to respond to Jesus because their religious activity perhaps has convinced them falsely that they've done all they need to do. They've gone as far as they need to go. But oh, I pray that you'll realize if you stop short of responding to Jesus because you've been religiously active all of your life, move beyond that religious participation and zeal. That is what God would have you to do. And truly look at who Jesus Christ is and place your faith in him. There's a third life application from Lydia's story. Your life contains a significance for the kingdom far beyond what you may see at this moment. Your life contains significance in the kingdom of God far beyond what you may sense at this moment. Lydia, being a woman, a woman of affluence, uh, signifies that God was interested in bringing her to himself regardless of her gender. And this was a, a radical thought in the first century. But she became a significant contributor to the kingdom and to the life of the apostle and his mission team while they were ministering in Philippi. In fact, at the very end of chapter 16, we noticed that Lydia's house was still that safe haven. Her temporary household, having moved from Thyatira to Philippi, became that safe haven of hospitality for Paul and his missionary team as long as they ministered in the city. And so God used her in a mighty way, regardless of, of how her present culture devalued her. Notice another significance of, of her place in the kingdom of God, far beyond what she could see at the moment. Her secular occupation became an incredible blessing to the apostles' ministry because she had the resources to support them and to bring hospitality. So not only her her place as a woman, but her, her secular occupation became a sacred piece of influence in Paul and his missionary team. And then third, notice that her move from Thyatira to Philippi was likely driven in her own mind by commerce, but actually God used that transition to use her in an incredible way, in, in a magnificent way in the city of Philippi. So we can't miss these true life applications that touch our heart from this opening story, the story of, story of Lydia. Now let's move a little deeper into Acts chapter 16. And while we have our minds at this makeshift uh, Sabbath prayer taking place beside the Strayman River, consider another story that, that developed from that very same location. We continue reading in verse 16, and Luke describes another experience near the river. Once while we were on our way to prayer, a slave girl met us who had a spirit of prediction, and she made a large profit for her owners by fortune telling. As she followed Paul 
And as she followed the rest of us, she cried out, these men are servants of the Most High. They're proclaiming the way of salvation. And she did this for many days. Reading ahead a little further. And Paul was greatly aggravated and turning to the spirit, not to the girl, but to the spirit said, I command you in the name of Jesus to come out of her. And the spirit came out of her right away. Once while at the riverbanks of the tributary of the Strayman River, Paul and his missionary team departed from that time of prayer. We don't know that if this was days after or weeks after. It was likely a week or more after because, again, they were there for the Sabbath prayer. And as they left the, the riverbanks, a, a slave girl followed them. This slave girl described in Scripture was possessed by a spirit of prediction, a spirit that allowed her the ability to tell the future. This spirit became known historically as a, as a Pathion spirit, the spirit of Pathia. Uh, Pathia was, uh, in, in Greek mythology, a, a priestess who, who would take her abode at the, at the Oracle of Feldi, the, the, the center city of Greece, excuse me, the Oracle of Delphi, as history teaches. And she, according to a, a, a myth, would, uh, this priestess, this priestess by the name of Pythia would dwell at this Oracle, at this, at this temple to hear a direct word from Apollos. And then she would make that word known. And Greek mythology would have her falling into a trance so that uh, the, uh, the god Apollos would speak through her to those who were attending the the temple of Apollos there in the center of Greece. This actually was a story of myth that that was referenced when individuals engaged this servant girl who actually had a demonic spirit. They gave her the power of fortune telling. She practiced the life of a soothsayer or, or one who had divine knowledge. And there were a group of men who saw fortune as an opportunity through her possession. So they, they actually took possession of her and exploited her. And people came to her thinking that, thinking that they were hearing words from a God about their future. And obviously, they would pay to to have her speak over their lives. And yet all of this was driven by, by a demonic presence in her life. So one day as Paul and his missionary team are traveling from the riverbanks, she began following them. And for days she followed them. And although crying out a positive message, these men are servants of the Most High. They bring the story of salvation Paul knew that he did not need that affirmation from a dark spirit. So Paul turned and looked at her and commended the spirit to come out of her. And this dark spirit left her. Now, those who had taken ownership of her life were, were very unpleased and actually took legal action against Paul and, and, and his mission team. But before we move on to the rest of that story and to the third encounter, notice inside this encounter that although we're not told what the young lady did in response to being freed from this possession, we are told that this demonic spirit passed off under the cover of, of a Greek myth. She was completely freed from the control of man and the control of darkness. She was completely freed. Her encounter with Jesus came through this miraculous release of, of bondage. Now, I'd like to share with you uh, three life applications from her own story, from her own personal encounter with the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
Uh, the first application simply is this. No amount of darkness in your life can overcome the impact of the gospel. Here is one, this young lady. We do not know her history. We are not told what happened after this event. We simply are told that as she encountered the gospel of Jesus, she was freed by the power of Christ. At that very moment, she was freed by his power from the control of man, from the control of darkness. So the first life application reminds us that no amount of darkness in your life can overcome the impact of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Perhaps you yourself, regardless of where you stand with Jesus, have wrestled with guilt from the past, or maybe you've wrestled with uh, oppressiveness from what others have done against you, and perhaps you've not been able to forgive, or perhaps you've bought into the lies, to the negative uh, words that have been spoken into your life, and, and now you're spending the rest of your existence trying to prove those lies wrong. Regardless of the situation, things that are dark and are broken can control us. And the first life application from the story of the slave girl teaches us that no amount of darkness can overcome the impact of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The second life application from the story of the slave girl teaches us that mankind never has the last word. And I love this truth. Those who owned the slave girl were exploiting her and using her for their personal gain. And perhaps you have felt in your life that you've been taken advantage of by someone or, or by some event or, or some entity. Perhaps you feel that way now. Please understand, mankind, those who might take advantage of you or abuse you or, or think uh, poorly of you or, or offend you, mankind never has the last word over your life. Only Jesus Christ does. Which brings us to the third life application from the story of the slave girl. Mankind does not determine your worth. Only Jesus determines your worth. This slave girl, um, depicted in her brokenness, in her oppression from this demonic spirit, a worth uh, that, that, that benefited other people. And yet she was free just by the, the words spoken over her life concerning the power of Jesus, which reminds us that, that only in Jesus can we have worth. Your worth is not determined by man, but only by what Jesus has done on the cross. And you, you have unimaginable worth. You have infinite worth because of what Jesus has done for you. Do not allow, uh, no amount of darkness to, to, to define you. Only, only the gospel of Jesus can define you. It over, it overpowers that darkness. Never allow mankind to have the last word. Only Jesus can have the last word. He's the only one that died for you and rose again to give you life eternal. And man never determines your worth. Don't listen to, to the fallen comments and actions of man uh, to determine your worth. Allow Jesus Christ to determine your worth. Uh, there was once a, a conference speaker who stood in front of the audience and held up a $20 bill. And he asked the participants, who would like this $20 bill? Well, hands went up everywhere. And then he took the $20 bill that was once nice and crisp and, and he wrinkled it up and he folded it up 
and he mashed it up and then he unfolded it and, and demonstrated how wrinkled and how crumpled it was. And he said, now who wants the $20 bill? Well, all the hands went up again. Well, this time he, he wrinkled and, and crumbled the $20 bill up and then he put it under his foot and he took the toe of his shoe and he pressed the $20 bill down into the floor and, and then he picked up the, $20 bill and unfolded it. And not only was it wrinkled, but it there was dirt and, and scuff marks on the $20 bill. And then he held it up and said, who would like the $20 bill? And everyone's hand went up again. And the reason is simple. Regardless of how that $20 bill was treated, nothing destroyed the value. And regardless of how life has treated you, regardless of the disappointments and the offensive statements made about you or actions done against you, nothing reduces your worth. Because of Jesus, you are infinitely valuable. And this becomes the great truth that we glean from this second personal encounter, the story of the slave girl. Now, I mentioned the owners of the slave girl were very perturbed at the fact that these missionaries spoke over her life freed her from that oppression, and those that had taken ownership of her lost their income, uh, lost the the fruitfulness of, of what the demonic spirit was able to do through this slave girl. And so they became very upset with the missionary team. And what happened? Well, let's turn to the third personal encounter, the story of the jailer. Now, for the sake of time, verses 19 through 25 uh, gives us a uh, the phenomena that, that took place. So uh, let me share this with you. Um, when the owners saw that they had lost their profit, they grabbed Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the authorities and brought them before the chief magistrates and said, these men are disturbing our city. And then look at, listen, look at verse 20. And then the crowd joined in and, and those that brought uh, Paul and Silas before the authorities said, these men are Jews. They're disturbing the city and they're not for Rome. They're here practicing illegally in this Roman colony. Philippi was a Roman colony. The mob joined in. And so the magistrates ordered that Paul and Silas be beaten with rods and thrown into jail and placed into the deep recesses of the jail and then fastened by chains to the wall and then had their feet placed in stocks. So this becomes a brutal treatment uh, for what Paul and Silas became accused of at this moment. If there ever was a, a punishment that didn't fit the crime, this would be the quintessential story of that reality. But but notice that later, the magistrates, those uh, duverums, the Latin has it, these duality of city leaders, two men who stood as civil magistrates and governors over the city, they learned later that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, so they tried to apologize and sent that word to them. But at this moment, because the crowd pressed in, there became a political motivation to ignore facts about Paul and Silas and to have them beaten and thrown into jail. So there was as much racial prejudice as there was legal correctness because they said in verse 20, these men are Jews, and so they attempted to to push them out. Rome had a law that was applicable to the Philippi colony that there could be no um, outside cults practiced 
in Rome. Now, this was a bit of, of hypocrisy practice here because there were many cults practiced in Rome, but that became a great uh, reason and excuse to silence the missionary team and to punish them for having uh, having uh, lost the, the lucrative uh, involvement they had had with the slave girl. And so Paul and Silas were thrown in jail, and now we know the storyline behind this phenomenal event that took place beginning in verse 25. Paul and Silas are now in, in jail, and they're singing hymns to God, and they're praying, and other prisoners are listening. In verse 25, the prisoners were listening to them, and that phrase in the Greek, the prisoners were listening, demonstrates an ongoing activity of the other prisoners. They were constantly listening, and while Paul and Silas were praying, the other prisoners hung on every word of their prayers, and so there was something supernatural already taking place inside the prison. In fact, I point to you two miracles that took place between verse 25 and verse 34. And, and the second miracle was the earthquake, a physical miracle. But the first miracle was the fact that Paul and Silas were not deterred at all from their, uh, from their harsh treatment. They sang and they praised and, and they cried out. And at that moment, verse 26, there came a violent earthquake that shook the prison and the chains fell off. And, and this likely meant that the chains came out of the walls. And while they still had their fetters around the wrist, the chains were released from the walls. The prison doors slung open. And, and then as the earthquake stopped and the dust settled, the jailer saw what had happened. And by Roman law, he would be punished in the same way that the prisoners would be punished if they were lost those that were under his care. Well, because of this event that at this moment the jailer could not explain, he knew that likely his life would be taken by those uh, who are supervising him. So he, he attempted to take his own life. Through the settling dust, the apostle Paul saw what he was about to do and shouted out in verse 28, do not harm yourself. <laughs> we're still here. Oh my goodness. That was then the jailer realized <laughs> There is an initial miracle taking place. The, the, the earthquake is a subordinate miracle compared to what's actually taking place. Paul and Silas and all the prisoners were there. No one escaped. So the jailer called for a light so that he could see that everyone was in place. And he, he fell down before Paul and Silas and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? You see, the slave girl under the oppression of the spirit of Pathia, she had cried out, these men are of the most high. They bring the way of salvation. The jailer had heard this. And so he went to Paul and Silas and said, I need this. Whatever you have, I need this salvation. What must I do to be saved? And they said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. You see this in verse 31. And you'll be saved in your whole household. And so the jailer took Paul and Silas, cleaned them, took care of them, and then the jailer and his entire household placed their faith in Jesus Christ and were baptized. And he brought them to his house, and they rejoiced because they had believed in God. We pause there. Verse 35 teaches us that the magistrate came and tried to apologize to Paul and Silas. They were freed. But we focus on the story of the jailer. He saw God at work and cried out, What must I do to be saved? Paul said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. And there's three life applications that we need to gain from the story of the jailer and his personal encounter 
with God through the story of Jesus Christ. First, the greatest need always represents a spiritual need. The jailer's greatest need was not to somehow be exonerated from losing the prisoners. None were lost. His greatest need was salvation. Your greatest need is always a spiritual need, a need for Jesus, a need to follow Jesus, a need to know the joy of receiving the grace and the forgiveness of Jesus. So the first life application truth, the greatest need is always a spiritual need. The second application, your situation is not without hope. Whatever you may be facing right now is not at all without hope. The jailer thought, this is hopeless. He attempted to kill himself. And Paul said, stop, you're not without hope. Listen to what Jesus has for you. Your present moment is not without hope. And the third life application, the joy of salvation that Jesus brings permeates every part of our lives. The jailer rejoiced that he had found salvation in Jesus. His family, his entire household found salvation. And scripture says they rejoiced. The joy of salvation permeates every part of our lives. What? An amazing truth we gain from the story of the jailer. All three of these personal encounters teach us what we need to be reminded of concerning our personal relationship with Jesus Christ. So yes, I love the public blessings we receive from men and women who follow Jesus, but those blessings come from something personal. And the same is with your life. I, I understand how easy it is to practice faith publicly by means of church attendance and religious practice. I understand at times how easy it becomes to believe that, that the darkness or the brokenness of our lives disqualifies us from the love of God. And I understand how easy it is to be concerned about other needs than the spiritual. But these three personal encounters with Jesus teach us that what matters most is what Jesus Christ desires to do in our lives. And then whatever he would have us to do publicly comes from this. So today, consider your personal encounter with Jesus. If you've trusted Jesus, prioritize that relationship over all things so that God can continue to do a great work in you so that the joy of that salvation permeates every part of your life. And if you've never trusted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, please consider doing that now because nothing matters except what you do in response to Jesus. I want to pray with you, and I want to ask that God will reinvigorate in your life a personal experience with Jesus Christ, or if you know him, a personal walk with Jesus. Oh, I pray that you'll trust Jesus today if you've never placed your faith in him. And if you know him, allow the joy of knowing him to permeate every part of your life. Father God, I thank you for this incredible chapter. There's so much here, Father, that you've taught us concerning one's personal encounter with Jesus. And Father, as we depart from this broadcast online, Lord, may these truths go with us. May we, may we realize what matters is what we do in response to you. And Father, I pray for that person who doesn't know you. May their heart open to you now that they may trust you as as savior of their life. And Father, for that one that knows you, but has lost the joy of his or her salvation, Lord, reignite in them their personal encounter with you so that they can live in the joy just as the jailer did on that incredible moment that he met you. Father, thank you for teaching us the importance and the joy of a personal encounter with you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. And together we said, amen. Right across the screen, our website is there with a way to uh, contact us personally, forward slash more, reach out to us. We would love to hear from you. Thank you for joining us. Keep your eyes on Jesus Christ. It's all about Jesus. 
I pray that you know him. Trust him today. Reach out to us. We'd love to talk with you more about what it means to know Jesus. Love you a lot. See you again real soon. God bless.